next week. All right, so we're going to continue a series that we started last week, and we've got uh, two more weeks after this. Uh, Be fruity. And as we learned last week, this is indeed a cultural issue that we're talking about, but probably not the one that some of you think of when you think of being fruity. Um, And also, this is something that we do find in the Bible, but it's something that Christians tend to overlook, ignore, or just don't get. And so uh, we, are, we are looking at um, several different passages over the next couple of weeks. And, and really, as I told you last week, the, the same thing is what we're going to keep coming back to, but at different angles as it's hit in different passages. And so uh, what we're looking at, as we looked at last week, we looked at several passages in Matthew. And what we saw that is, is that a genuine believer in Christ, if their life has, has genuinely been made alive, brought from spiritual life to, I mean, from spiritual death to spiritual life, and they've got the spirit inside of them, there will be, should be evidence of that at some point. Now, um, some of you hit me up after the sermon last week. I fully expected that. Actually, I fully expected more of you to do that because this is just one of those topics that as soon as you start talking about it, it's going to hurt you're going to disagree, uh, you're not going to like it, or whatever the case may be. And I kind of expected all of that. Um, but what I gathered from some of you that came up to me was there's some things I want to keep clarifying. And so I'm going to try to do that some this morning. But always, 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 the invitation is open for you. If I say something up here or don't say something and you have a question about it, I love having those kind of conversations. Um, I love being able to have the opportunity to clarify or to dig deeper because in a 35 40, 45, 48 minute sermon. Um, sometimes you don't get the opportunity to clarify and you choose how to say something, but you don't know if it's connecting. So um, I always, I, I always, I try to say often, give me about 90% grace because I'm up here and, and, and I don't know how it's connecting with you. So if I say something and you're like, no, that didn't sound right, or um, I'm not quite clicking on that, let's just have a conversation about it because I'd far rather that, okay? So let's, uh, let's jump in this morning. And, and as we're jumping in, let me ask you the question just to get you thinking at a different angle. Have you ever known somebody, have you ever known somebody who says they're a Christian, but when you look at their life, you're going... I don't think that's what a Christian should look like. Anybody know anybody like that? Don't look next, next to you. Just raise your hand. Anybody know anybody like that? Okay, and it's not necessarily the person next to you. And I'm sure every one of you could have raised your hand that there's some people that we come across, perhaps if we're being honest, there's been times in our life where we have claimed the name of Christ, but if someone were looking at our life, they'd go, besides you saying you're a Christian, I would have never known. Or, or, or even, I, I thought you were opposed to that by the way you live your life. The Bible actually addresses that, that very situation, and, and Jesus addresses that, and so do some of the others. We're going to keep looking at Jesus this morning, and then next week we're going to look at, at some of the others who address that. But this morning, here's where we're going if you get nothing else out of it. You cannot produce fruit unless you are connected to Jesus. So last week we said a genuine believer in Christ, there will be evidence at some point. Now the first clarification I want to I make again this week is that that fruit may not be something you see. Okay, so just because you are interacting with someone and you don't see fruit doesn't mean that you're the only person who has the opportunity to see it, and it doesn't mean that that fruit is not there when maybe you're not with them, right? So we've got to be real careful as we go through verses like this and we talk about the Scripture's expectation that a believer has evidence of their belief in their life that we don't make ourselves the fruit inspectors, 
right? We have to be aware, we have to be discerning, but it is not my job to go around and police you. But if I'm in an accountability relationship with you, if you and I are discussing something or having a conversation, you claim to be a believer and there's something adamantly opposed to Christ in your life, I should be able to speak to you about that. But I need to be real careful because fruit is not always external. You can't necessarily see a growing desire in my heart for the Lord. You should be able to see that lived out, but you can't see if my affections for Christ are being stirred up in maybe any particular moment. You can't see if, if I'm growing in my patience with my kids unless you are with me around my kids over several opportunities and, 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 and an extended amount of time. You can't see if I'm loving my, my family well. You can't see if I'm treating people who I disagree with with grace. You can't necessarily see that unless you happen to be the person I disagree with, right? So there's not gonna be, uh, you're not always gonna be in a position to be able to see the fruit. So you, you gotta step back for a moment and make sure you, you remember, remind yourself the fruit is not always going to be external. There should be external fruit, but it's not always going to be external. There's going to be fruit that's going to be internal. And so you cannot produce fruit unless you are connected to Jesus. Let's go to John chapter 15, page 1219, if you're using the Bibles. John chapter 15, page 1219. As you're turning there, let me kind of quickly sum up where we're at in the book of John because we're at the end. And Jesus is moving his way toward the cross. He has already had the last meal, the last supper with his, with his, uh, um, his closest followers. Uh, John chapter 13 was that, where he helped them to understand a little bit more the Passover meal in light of who he is now. So this tradition that the Jews have been celebrating for, for centuries of God's redemption and setting them free uh, from slavery to the Egyptians and, and this Passover lamb that they would have to slay every year to remind them of God's redemption. Jesus is now helping them to understand in John 13 and that last supper that he is the one that that Passover lamb has been pointing to for all of those centuries, that he will be the final Passover lamb that, that, that is required to cover the sins of, uh, of sinful people. In John chapter 14, he starts to talk to them about how he's going to be leaving them soon. And he says things like, I'm going to a place uh, that you can't go right now, uh, but where I'm going, uh, you know the way. And, and some of his followers will say, well, how do we know the way? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so he's helping prepare his disciples, his closest followers, for his departure. But in his departure, there's going to be another coming, the Spirit of God. And he says, unless I go, he can't come to you. So he's, he's given these last words of comfort, of peace, of encouragement, and then at the end of chapter 14, he says, get up, let's go from here. And at this point, uh, we, we know he's walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, where, where he's going to be spending those last few hours in prayer before the Father. But, but it's likely that these words here in John are something that Jesus is telling him as, he's wa as they're walking to the Garden. And here's what he says. We're going to read through verses 1 through 8, and then we'll come back through. Jesus says, I am the true vine. I picture as he's walking to the garden, just like Jesus had typically done, he's pointing out things that are around him and he's using that to teach. And so he would have likely seen some vines on the ground. I'm the true vine, he says. And my father is the gardener. He takes every, away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. He prunes every branch that bears fruit so that it will bear more fruit. You are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it remains in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me, you can accomplish nothing. 
If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch and he dries up. And such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and are burned up. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you are my disciples. All right, so we're going to walk through this, but uh, it's going to be helpful to walk through it to understand the characters that Jesus is describing because he's telling a parable or using a metaphor and, he's, and he's, he's got things in this metaphor, this imagery of the vine and the vine dresser, their gardener, the branches, they represent people and you need to know who they are. And so here's what we've got. The characters, God the Father, Jesus says it right up front, my father is the gardener, the vine dresser. Jesus, he says, I'm the vine. Okay, we're talking about the primary vine from which branches of grapes or olives would come off. The, the branches with no fruit are professing believers or non-genuine believers. In other words, they're believer in name only, but over time it shows that they're not believers. Then the branches that bear fruit are genuine believers. So these are the categories of people that Jesus is going to be talking about. Now let's walk through and see what he's saying about this. So he says, I am the true vine. Now, not only would this have been significant if he happened to have seen a vine on the ground, but this is something as soon as Jesus would have said, I am the true vine, his Jewish followers would have immediately drawn up images of some Old Testament scriptures, ways that God had described his covenant people Israel in the Old Testament as a vine planted in a vineyard. You can go to places like Psalm 80. You can go to Ezekiel chapter 15. Um, you can go to Jeremiah chapter 2 and specifically verse 21 where this, some of this imagery is used where, where God calls Israel, his covenant people in the Old Testament, a vine. And usually that vine is not being fruitful in those stories. That vine is growing wild. That vine is, is, is planting roots in places it shouldn't be planting roots. And so as soon as Jesus says, I am the true vine, it would have brought those images to mind. And I think it was very intentional for Jesus to say this because here's what he's saying. I am the true Israel. See, see, God had a plan through his covenant people, Israel, that he was going to work through them and bring about all these, the, the, the people of all these other nations to him. That was always God's intent to bring about people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. You can find verses in the Old Testament that are clear that God always intended to bring Gentiles into the, the kingdom as well, but he intended to use uh, the, the people of Israel. And so go back a little bit to Abraham in Genesis 12, where God says, I'm going to work through you. And I'm going to bring about descendants through you. And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bless who blesses you and curse who curses you. And so God's plan through Abraham was to be through his family, through his descendants. And we, we see as we track the Old Testament that the promise was passed on from Abraham to Isaac, not Ishmael, Isaac. And then from Isaac to Jacob. And then, and then Jacob down through his 12 sons. Now, 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 that plan was that God would then work through this nation, that this nation was to be the light to the other nations. That's why God gave them the law. One of the purposes of the Old Testament law was simply to set this people apart from everyone else, which is why some of the laws make absolutely no sense to us. And, and by the way, in June, the series that we're starting in June is in the book of Leviticus. And that's the book that when you start your one-year plan, you get stuck at and you stop at. And so we're going to cover it, all right? But, but when you read through Leviticus, there's, there's 
there's laws in there that you're going, I don't understand why I can't boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. Or you read and you're saying, and it says, don't wear clothing that's mixed with different materials. And you look at the tag on your shirt and go, well, I'm, I'm clearly breaking that one. And there's things like that that don't make sense. But you have to understand that in the culture that God's people Israel were in, he was bringing them out of a pagan nation, which they had been in for 400 years. So the people coming out of Egypt, all they knew was Egypt, right? And so he's bringing them out of Egypt where they would have clearly seen a worship of other gods, pagan gods, and certain ways of worshiping. He's bringing them into a land that's surrounded by nations that worship other gods and worship them in ways that God does not want his people to worship him. And so part of the intent of the law is to set his people apart. And so he gives these, these laws to govern them so that while they are in the land, they will be altogether different, which then reflects the altogether different character of the God whom they serve, which is different from every other God in every other nation. But they couldn't do that. And they, didn't, they did, repeatedly didn't respond to calls to return back to the Lord. And so God's covenant people all throughout the Old Testament, we see them constantly going astray, going after other gods and God sending prophets, calling them back, turn back to the Lord and, and he'll relent of his judgment. And yet they continue to do so ultimately to where they are led away into captivity. So Jesus shows up on the scene. And he says, I'm the true vine. In other words, God's plan is not canceled out because Israel failed. God's plan to bring light to all the nations is not canceled out because Israel couldn't follow through. Instead, what's happening is God has always, in his, in his sovereignty, always known that that was going to be the case and was always working all things ultimately toward this day when Christ would come because all of God's plans are ultimately summed up in Christ. And Jesus shows up on the scene and says, I'm the true Israel. I'm the true vine. I'm the one through whom God is going to bring light to all the nations. And think about as Jesus says that, he's a Jew, full-blooded. Okay, and you can trace his, Matthew and Luke give the genealogy of Jesus, we can trace his line back to Abraham. And so the promise of God, and, and Paul in Galatians would help us understand that when, when God said to Abraham, um, through your seed I will bring blessing, Paul helps us in Galatians to understand that that seed ultimately point it to Christ. And so Jesus is that true vine, the, the fulfillment of Israel. He is the one who's going to carry on God's plan and purpose to bring light to all the nations. He says, I'm the true vine. And guess what? Being that he's the true vine, he won't fail. He's not going to abandon the Father. He's not going to run after other gods. He comes and he fulfills all of the righteous standards of God. I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener, okay? In verse 2, then he says, he, the father, okay? So Jesus is talking about his role, and he's talking about God the father's role. The father, God the father, he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. So if you picture a vine, and, and when we come to metaphors and when we come to parables, we've got to be really careful because our tendency sometimes is to find every single detail in something, and that's not always the intended purpose behind a metaphor or a parable, that every single detail lines up with something, right? It's sometimes, and oftentimes, the big idea is the purpose. And if you push it too far, you, you start putting words in Jesus' mouth. 
And so he says, he takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. So if you think about a vine, okay, and I know this is not even relevant to our culture, but in the, in the, in the vineyard culture, in the, the grape growing and the olive growing, they would prune these branches. They would, they would clean out branches before it was time and so to, for them to bear fruit. And so if they came across a branch and, and this branch was coming off the vine and there was no fruit on there, it's a dead branch. And so they take that branch off and they throw it in the aisle so that it'd be picked up later when they came through. And when you throw away a branch, that branch is really useless. I mean, we're talking grape wood or we're talking olive wood and you can't build things with that. It's really only good for fueling a fire. Okay, so he's saying, my father's the gardener. He takes away every branch that does not bear fruit in me. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna hash that out a little bit more in just a moment. He prunes every branch that bears fruit. So remember that the branches that don't bear fruit are people who profess to be believers. They're, they're not genuine believers. They look like believers on the outside, but over time it's revealed that they're not. And the, people, the branches that do bear fruit are believers. Okay, so, so, so far, here's what Jesus is saying. God, God the Father takes the branches that don't bear fruit and he tosses them away. But the branches that do bear fruit, believers, okay, you're bearing fruit, that's a good thing. He prunes them. He prunes them. He cuts away things. You see, when they would, when they would go to do the, 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 the trimming and the pruning before the, the time of the, the harvest, they would, they would usually cut out branches. Even though there, there was several branches on a vine, the, the ones closest to the, the, the main vine are the ones that are going to get the most nutrients. And so what they would start to do is cut some of the ones on the outside or they'd cut some of the ones off so that the ones that are closest could bear the most fruit. Now, now when you think about pruning some of these branches, they're pruning away live branches, live flesh, cutting away little, this, this maybe this branch comes off the, the, the vine and, and it's got a couple of other tributary type branches and they're cutting those off so that, that maybe they can restart their growing again. Live branches. I mean, you cut that and sap's coming out. And Jesus says, my father, the gardener, he, he takes every branch that doesn't bear fruit and he tosses it away, he cuts it off and tosses it away. And those that do bear fruit, he prunes them so that they will bear more fruit. Now that, that, that might seem a little strange to us. But here's, here's, here's what Jesus is getting at. Believers in Jesus should bear fruit. And those who do bear fruit, it's in the Father's interest, God the Father's interest, that you bear even more fruit. And in order for us to bear more fruit, it requires that God prune us, which can be a painful process. When you think about cutting away live branches, live flesh and sap coming out, that can be a painful process. I, I want to show you a, a few verses here uh, real quick. This is Romans 8, 28 through 30. Now, you know what Romans 8, 28. And we've looked at these verses. We've had a couple messages on them before. I'm not going to explain them uh, in deeply that way. But Romans 8, 28, you know that. It's probably been quoted to you. Maybe you, you really just disliked someone when they quoted it to you at an inopportune time. Their intention was good, but they said, hey, we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And they probably, if they quoted the whole verse, great. They maybe just left it at, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And their point was that God's going to use this to make, make good out of it. And you're sitting there going, I don't want to hear that right now. I understand the scripture says that. I don't want to hear right now. We, we know that verse, but we usually forget the second part of that verse, that that's not a promise that God gives to every person. God does not work together all things for good for every person. He works all things together for good for a very specific group of people. 
those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Somewhat sum that up, believer. God works all things for good in your life. How do I know that? Because he keeps going on. And he says in verse 29, because. How can Paul say God works together all things for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. That is all one group of people. Those he foreknew, those he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, those he called, those he justified, those he glorified, all one group of people, they will make it through to the last stage. That's Paul's point. They will make it through. Those God foreknew will ultimately be glorified, bodies resurrected, reunited, without sin. And there's no room for any of them to be dropped in that process. And so Paul is able to say, because that's God's purpose and his plan, that he is working this process out, that those whom God foreknew all the way from before the foundation of the world, he will glorify them. It will happen. This, there's a string that, that goes through there, and it will not be broken. And that's why Paul can say, therefore, God works together all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, believer in Christ... God can take absolutely anything and use it for his good, which is to conform you to the image of his son. Now, his good may not be your good idea, right? What you think is good may not be what God thinks is good, but God is good in and of himself. So that which flows from God is good. We don't determine that God is good because he does good things. God does good things because he is good. And that order is important. And so when we try to identify and define what good is, we can't start with my idea. We can't start with what I would conceive. We start with what God has revealed and who he is. And so Paul is able to say he works all things together for your good. And Paul connects that your good with being conformed to the image of the Son, ultimately being glorified, which means everything that comes into your life, believer, every hardship, every trial, every sickness, every disease, every loss, every annoying person, every, every moment where you're faced with a challenge, all of that, every single one of that, small and great, God uses that ultimately in your life to more and more conform you to the image of his Son. And that's not always easy, is it? And it doesn't feel good. Because sometimes that pruning, sometimes that pruning is just simply putting us in situations where our patience is tested and we've been praying for patience. And you know you're not supposed to pray for patience. <laughs> you should, but you know the saying, don't pray for patience because you're going to have to learn it. Right? Sometimes he'll just put us in a situation that he's going to constantly be confronting us with something so that we will see what he's hoping that we're going to see, that he wants us to see. And so maybe it's that we're constantly disobeying, constantly disobeying in a certain area, and he's going to constantly keep letting us run up against that disobedience and see the consequences, feel the consequences, so that at some point we're going to go, oh, oh, I got a problem there, don't I? I got some pride down there. Oh, my heart's not honoring there. Or I'm, I'm, I'm not showing respect there, and so I keep running into this. Or something like that. Or, or sometimes he's going to allow or even cause, and it could be either or, things that come into our life, sickness, disease, um, trials, tribulations, and he's doing that with our good in mind. Because listen, we grow under trial. We grow under suffering. Suffering. 
None of us would pick and choose the suffering that some of you have had to go through. None of us would. But God in his wisdom and his goodness knows that under that you grow. And whether he allowed or whether he caused, whatever the case may be, and we've got to be real careful about identifying that because we can't identify that as easily as sometimes we think we can. But scripture supports both options. He can either allow, as in Job's case, or he can cause, as in Israel's case, where he raised up the people that he used to destroy his own people and then held those people accountable. There's a tension there, always a tension that we can't reconcile. That's part of the pruning process. Hebrews 12 and Proverbs 3, Hebrews 12 is quoting Proverbs 3, where, where the proverb, the, 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 the Solomon says that God disciplines the son or the children whom he loves. Hebrews picks that up and speaks to a group of people, believers in Christ, who are suffering and who are facing trials. And he uses this as encouragement to the believers to press on in the face of suffering and persecution because he says, remember that God disciplines the children who he loves. And if you're facing discipline, guess what that means? God loves you. And he's not going to let you persist on in the way you've been going. Just like a loving parent disciplines their child. You don't let your child play in the street on a busy street. If you're a loving parent, you warn the child about that street and the dangers that are there. And if your child runs into the street, you, you yell at them and you call them back and you might even spank them because you want to get this through because the cost is if I don't discipline you and show my love in this way, then you're going to end up smack in the middle of the street. And how loving would that be of me, knowing that that's the outcome and letting you do that anyway? My discipline then becomes love. And so this pruning in verse 2, it's a good thing to the believer. He goes on in verse 3, you are clean already because of the word that I have spoken to you. And that's a strange statement. He's speaking to his followers, his disciples. Uh, at this point, by the way, 11 Judas has already left. Jesus could not make this statement if Judas was still with him. He looks at his 11 and he says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. You're already clean. You don't got to get cleaned up. Because of the word which Christ has been constantly proclaiming, they've believed that. They're made clean already. They belong to him. They are connected to him. These 11 that he's talking to, they are part of the branches on the vine that are bearing fruit. He's saying, you're clean already. But Judas was not clean. See, Judas is the first branch, the branch that does not bear fruit that ultimately gets cut and thrown away who professed to be a believer, who has a connection with Christ in a surface level. He claims to be a follower of Christ. He walked around with Christ for three, three or so years. He, he did ministry even in Christ's name. He saw Christ do things. And yet, think about it, yet he was not connected to Christ as the branch to the vine. How is that possible to be that up close, to hear it, to see Jesus for who he is, to be exposed to things that, that nobody else gets to be exposed to that are undeniably God, and yet to only remain connected on the surface, ultimately to betray him. It's possible, and it happens. And there are branches that are bearing no fruit that seem to be connected, but they get cut off and thrown away. 
but you are clean, he says, because of the word I've already spoken to you. So therefore, remain in me, and I will remain in you. This remain is, it's keep this close connection. Keep believing in me. Keep pressing into me. Keep trusting my word. Keep proclaiming my word. Don't walk away from me. Keep believing in me. And guess what? Those who continue to believe all the way until the day that Christ returns, those are the genuine believers. That's how the scriptures tell us that we can identify who genuine believers are. They stay till the end. They persevere till the end. John and 1 John would say there was a group of people that were associated with the believers there in Ephesus who ultimately walked away. And his explanation for why they walked away, they were with us, but they didn't really belong to us. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Keep this connection close and, and then you'll bear um, much fruit. He says, unless you remain in the vine, you cannot do anything apart from me. And so when, when the believer in Christ remains in Christ, that's how we bear fruit. That's how our life produces the things that bring glory to God. This is how our life uh, uh, shows that we are genuinely believers, which is how he's going to wrap this up in verse 8. That This is how you know that you're, you're my disciples, by bearing much fruit. Listen, you cannot do that, though, apart from Christ. And if you try, and we all try, we're, I, I, and I, this is going to break down, but we become GMOs. Where we're genetically modified fruits, right? We, we're, we're manufactured, we're man-made. We're not producing the type of fruit that God produces in our lives. We're producing the type of fruit that we can produce in our lives. And that's not God-honoring fruit. Unless you remain connected to Christ, you cannot bear fruit. And if we try, we might fool ourselves. We might fool each other. But God knows those who belong to him. And there's going to come a day where he's going to cut away the branches that aren't bearing fruit. And you're going to say, Lord, I was bearing fruit. And you're going to, he's going to say to you, that's not my fruit. Or in other places, he says it this way, Lord, Lord, when did we not do this in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, I don't know you. We did all this stuff in your name. No, I don't know you. I'm going to keep going here. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him bears much fruit because apart from me you can accomplish nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch. So now he's going back to that first group. Those who don't bear fruit, if they don't remain in me, they don't bear fruit. Because he's already said, you cannot bear fruit unless you remain in me. So those who don't remain on me, they're not bearing fruit. And so now he's talking about what the gardener, what God the Father is going to do with those. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown out like a branch. Remember I told you they cut it off and they threw it into the aisle because it's useless. And then it dries up. And such branches are gathered up and thrown into the fire and are burned up. Because again, you can't build anything with grape wood. You can't build anything with, with olive wood. They're not really a useful type of wood. So once it's cut off from the vine and it's dead anyway, you throw it down. The other farmers will come by, pick it up, and they're going to just burn that trash pile. Now, again, be careful about pushing the metaphor. But one thing we can know for certain is that Jesus is saying you will experience the judgment of God because of sin. That's where, that's where this goes. That those who don't bear fruit, and remember, it's not always external fruit, but those who don't bear fruit, they're not genuine believers, they're not connected to the vine. The day when Christ returns will reveal that. 
And there's other places that Christ has said the same thing. He tells a parable about wheat and tares. They look the same, but at the end, you'll be able to tell the difference. Sheep and goat, they look similar, but at the end, you'll be able to tell the difference. Right now, you may fool people, I may fool people, we may fool each other, but God is never fooled. And there will be a day where he's going to separate and he's going to cut off those branches. They're going to be thrown away and they're useless at that point. And they will experience the judgment of God that they're already under. Verse 7, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. So part of remaining in Christ includes our prayer connection with Christ. But look at this and look at it closely in the context because you can't take John 15, 7 and let it stand on its own. Absolutely not. You've got to remain in Christ. And if you remain in me and I remain in you, then ask whatever you want and it will be given to you. So if I'm remaining in Christ, it goes to the assumption that my desires are going to be lined up with Christ. I'm going to be desiring the things that God desires. I'm going to be hating the things that God hates. I'm not going to be going asking him for things that are opposed to him. I'm not going to be going asking him for things that are selfish in my request. And so Jesus is free to be able to say, if you remain in me and I remain in you, then ask whatever you want. It'll be yours. I think you understand why I have to clarify that. Verse 8. My Father is honored by this, that you bear much fruit and show that you are my disciples. Look at the connection. My Father is honored or glorified by this, which, by the way, how can God cut off branches? How can God prune? Because his glory is at stake. And God is the only being who it is unselfish for him to pursue his own glory. In fact, if he didn't pursue his own glory, there's somebody else that's God. If he is the highest being, the greatest creator, supreme creator of all, all things, there's nothing higher than him, nothing more holy than him, then the greatest thing that anything in all of creation can do is to bring glory to their creator. And the greatest thing he can do as God is to do things that bring him glory. And so my father is honored or glorified in this, that you bear much how can he prune people? How can he, how can he let us go through or even put us through painful situations? Because his glory is at stake. And the more fruit those that belong to him bear, the more glory God receives. And listen, our life is not about our glory. Our life is about God's glory. We have got to get a much bigger picture of who God is and a much smaller picture of who we are. And the more that our picture of God is before us and, and, and what drives us, the better perspective and understanding we're going to have as we go through life. God does things for his glory. And that's what's at stake here. And that's why he takes his children that he loves and when he sees things in their, in their lives where there could be more fruit being born or where there's a hindrance to fruit being born, he cuts it away or he pinches it off so that ultimately it will bear more fruit. Because the more fruit his children bear, the more they desire the Lord, the more they live that out, the more the fruits of the Spirit are born in their life, the more they proclaim the gospel to others, the more, the more, the more, the more that God is glorified. And then Jesus says, and you show that you are my disciples. Do you see the connection between fruit and showing that you are my disciples? You cannot detach them. If you are a believer in Christ, you will at some point bear fruit. 
It may be inconsistent. It, it, it may not always be external, but if there is no fruit being born in your life, that's reason for you to doubt. Because you cannot produce fruit unless you're connected to Jesus. And if there's no fruit, if you have no desire to know the Lord, if you have no growing desire in you to know the things that he loves and to hate the things that he th hates, if you see no changes in your life and the way that you relate to people or treat people, if you see nothing, that is a reason to doubt. Because the question is, you may be outwardly attached to the vine. You may appear to be associated with Christ just like Judas was. People looked at him for three-something years. Oh, look at him. He's one of those followers. He's with Jesus. It's possible to attend church every week. It's possible to give regularly. It's possible to serve in ministry. Look at Judas and to not be connected to the vine. And the fruit that you think you're bearing in your life may be manufactured fruit at the best. But it's not God's fruit. So some of you this morning, some of you maybe God's placing that conviction on you this morning saying, look at your life. Look at your life. Look at your heart. Others of you this morning, we talked about this last week. Um, if you're a believer in Christ, and you see some of this, if you see a growing desire, if you, if you see areas of your life that, man, they're not perfect and they won't be until Christ comes back, but you see areas of your life and you're going, man, I'm not like I was. I'm not where I need to be, but I'm not like I was. That is encouragement that God is at work in your life. If, if you have a battle being waged in your heart against sin, that is evidence that God is at work in your life. If, if you have a, a, a growing desire to know God and a, a growing desire to hate the things that God hates, that's evidence that God is working in your life. And if you're being pruned or if you're being disciplined and you're a believer in Christ and you got caught in your sin, that is God's mercy. And I could tell you stories about being caught in my sin. It was humiliating I once got pulled before the elders of a church because of sin I got caught in. And it was God's mercy that he caught me and didn't allow it to stay hidden. It was God's mercy being shown through these, the, these elders doing what they're supposed to do to someone under their care to say, you, you can't do this. This is not what believers in Christ do. That's God's mercy. It was painful. It's humiliating. That was God pruning, pinching, snipping, cutting. Why? Because he receives glory when we bear more fruit. If you have that in your life, that's where you can look to say, I'm a child of God. Don't just look back and say, well, I, I believed on this day. I, I signed a card on this day. I was at a conference this day. I, I raised my hand or whatever. Those things can be helpful, but those are not the sure way. The way the scriptures tell us to, to know that we are believers in Christ is time will tell. If you continue to persevere over time in believing, you continue to trust in Christ, that's how you know. So do I do that? Am I, am I trusting Christ? Am I continually growing in that? Too many people look back and they say, I went for it. I got baptized. I said a prayer. I signed a card. And listen, lots of people genuinely got saved in those moments and lots of people didn't. And the ones that didn't were told that you're a believer in Christ if that's happened. And maybe it was a sincere telling, but if they didn't genuinely believe, they're not. Signing a card doesn't do it. Saying a prayer merely expresses belief if it's there. 
But prayer is not magical. Going forward, only if there's genuine belief in the heart is that something you can rest on. But some of us perhaps are looking back and saying, well, I did this, and someone told me that because I did this, I'm a believer. But if you haven't seen fruit in the last 10, 15 years of your life, I call that into question. And listen, I see it all the time. All the time. We live in a culture. Uh, in America, we're, we're not really Christian, but we, we are more so than more countries. And we live in a culture where it's more acceptable to be Christian because we don't get our heads cut off to be a Christian. And then you, when you live in Oklahoma, it's even more acceptable. But then when you live in a rural part of Oklahoma, it's even more acceptable. Don't be fooled by cultural Christianity. Look for the fruit. Look for the fruit. Evangelism. New believers, just because someone says to you, I'm a believer in Christ, don't just take them at their word if you're seeing things in their life that don't add up. Instead, challenge them on that. Talk to them about what they should be seeing. Hey, hey, so I, you're a believer in Christ. Man, isn't the hope that God gives us something fantastic that just helps us get through? I mean, talk to them about the things that believers should have, the type of fruit they should be bearing, and, and pray that God would use that to bring up seeds of doubt if they're not a believer, and that his spirit would bring conviction. And don't be fooled if you're in an evangelism situation and someone is listening to you or, or you're, 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 you're sharing the gospel and they say a prayer. Don't just relax. I mean, praise God for that moment and, and pray that the gospel is taking root in good, fertile soil and that it's going to grow. But don't relax and be done with them. You've just started the process of discipleship. You have a responsibility to follow through now. Because listen, it may not have been genuine in that moment, but over time, as you interact with them, you'll be able to discern that. And God may be pleased to use you to keep hammering that home, and it may take in the future. Kids, I said it last week, just because you baptize your kids, parents, if your kids tell you they trust in Christ, don't rest easy. Are your kids growing in that? Do you see them growing in that? That's our responsibility as parents, that's our responsibility. Our first level of discipleship is to our kids. If you can't disciple your kids, don't try to disciple someone else. Because if your kids are, are entrusted to your care, you have a responsibility to point them to the Lord. And if you relax because they got caught up in baptism because their friend got baptized, how do you know that's not the motive of their heart? And it may be genuine, it may be sincere, but you have got to stay on it. Because only time will tell. And fruit over time. And the last thing I would say as we wrap this up is to the person who listens to me today and is going to listen last week and these next couple weeks and is going to say, oh, okay, well, fruit. I'm going to bear fruit and, and people are going to see how much fruit I'm bearing. Or you're sitting there right now thinking something like that. I've got a lot of fruit in my life. Don't be fooled. We don't produce fruit in order to be accepted by God. We produce fruit because we've been accepted by God. Keep the order right. Keep the order right. So, it's off a long time ago. Let's take a moment and um, let's just ask the Lord, what, what has my name on it this morning? Where sin runs deep.
take your word by your spirit apply it because God I, I can make a mess out of it and I don't, I don't want that to be a distraction so God I, I, I want you I want to see you do that and I know that's what you do I'm asking you to do it in spite of me God I pray that you would show each of one of us what, where our heart is where, where, are we connected to Christ some of us in here know, know that we, we are and we see the fruit growing and we're, we're grateful, God, and we take great joy in that. And so for, for us, God, we, we're just praying, God, keep doing that. Keep bearing that in us. Keep, keep keeping us. Others, God, maybe they, they think they are, they, 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 but maybe they're going through a season where they haven't seen some fruit in a while, and so right at the moment, they're starting to wonder. And so, God, I pray that you would bring some encouragement to them. And, and yes, if there's some pruning that's taking place, God, show that to them in your grace and your mercy. Bring about the fruit that brings you glory in their lives. And, God, help them to see that as love and to experience it as that. Others, God, are in here, and, and they think they're a believer. They think they've got a connection, but, God, you don't know them. So God, I pray that you would let your spirit reveal that to them this morning through seeds of doubt, through conviction, that they would ask that question, do I really know Christ? And if not, God, and, and for those who are here who, who flat out know, I don't know Christ, God, I pray that you would, you would do the same, that you would, you would put before them the beauty of the gospel, that Christ's death on their behalf and resurrection of the dead was an act of your love and continues to show your love, that, God, you don't love us because Christ died for us. You sent Christ to die for us because you love us. That's the order. You loved us long before Christ died for us, and that was an expression of your love and continues to be. Show it to them, Lord, that they might respond in belief. Make us a group of people, a church that bears fruit, that brings you glory. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you guys next week.